Okay, everybody, let's get started. I'll make the introduction brief because I believe we're all familiar with Dr. Stein and her wonderful contributions to this institution. And um, uh, so Dr. Stein briefly is chief of trauma, heavily involved in everything that happens in, in this hospital. And it's a wonderful person to have here talk to us today on uh, advanced concepts and uh, continuous renal replacement therapy. So without further ado. All right, good afternoon, everyone. So many of you um, remember I was here six months ago, whatever it was, we talked about the basics of CRT. What I want to now do today is take those basics, expand on them a little bit. Now that you guys have all had familiarity managing patients on the pump, what that actually, kind of some more advanced concepts I call them. It's not rocket science. Remember, let's not forget, I'm still a surgeon, not a nephrologist. Um, but, and I also at the very end want to hopefully talk about Mars a little bit because I know that's something that comes up sometimes. We don't do it a ton, but um, there's not much to talk about, to be very honest with you. But hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that at the end. Very briefly, right, we all know the kidney. Not very, um, this is not very exciting. But that being said, it is an unbelievably complicated organ. Do I have my nephrologist here? Where's my nephrologist? There you are. Stop me if I say something wrong. Um, the kidney is a really, really, really interesting, fascinating organ, though, because the kidney not only filters, but also reabsorbs, right? And that's the one thing that the pumps can't do, which is why we need to be a little bit smarter than that. Um, we all know about acute kidney injury, right? Huge, huge problem. Uh, obviously, stepwise increase in relative risk for death going from risk injury to failure. No big surprise to anybody in this room, typically defined by the rifle classification. Um, the prognosis of mortality for patients who have acute kidney injury, depending on who you read, ranges from 10 to 80%. Uncomplicated AKI may have a mortality rate of up to about 10%, so pure isolated renal insufficiency. Obviously, AKI with multiple organ failure, your mortality rates high, uh, increase even more. And then older studies, when they look at renal replacement therapy as kind of a um, prognostic indicator, technically, in the literature, the, the um, mortality rate in patients who require renal replacement therapy is up to 80% or over 80%. Now, obviously, we apply renal, renal replacement therapy in this day and age a little bit differently than we used to, so that, that statistic almost certainly does not hold true anymore. But obviously, if you wait until somebody's in multiple organ failure and you put them on the pump, that's bad. AKI, interestingly, is an independent risk factor for mortality. Um, and this is thought to be due to both an increase in uh, risk of non-renal complications, such as bleeding and sepsis, as well as some experimental models that talk about this distant effect of ischemic AKI on other organs, including the heart, brain, and lungs. So renal failure in and of itself is bad for your body. It's not just bad for your kidneys. All right, so what I want to do is as we walk through this, you'll see at the bottom there, and I will, I will obviously make these slides available. I apologize. I finished them last night. Um, so, but what I basically, a lot of this stuff is just so you guys have these references. These are the Cadigo guidelines for those of you who haven't seen them. They were published in 2012. It's a very nice, very comprehensive um, evidence-based guidelines that have been put together that talk about all aspects of renal failure, interest or renal insufficiency, or, or renal issues, I guess. Um, interestingly, very little of it is actually dedicated to renal replacement therapy renal replacement therapy and specifically CRT, but you'll see I put up a bunch of those kind of meta-analysis they've done in there because those are the best data that we have, at least as of 2012. All right, so who gets renal replacement therapy? Obviously, you initiate renal replacement therapy emergently when life-threatening changes in fluid electrolyte acid-base balance exist, no big surprise. The one that I really like is as opposed to what our nephrologists typically tell us, which is we have to wait till the BUN reaches X typically greater than 100, the current recommendations, or at least as of 2012 by Cadigo, is that consider the broader clinical context, the presence of conditions that can be modified with RRT and trends in laboratory tests rather than a single BUN or creatinine level alone. So those are, in fact, <coughs> our current guidelines. And when I say RRT, renal replacement therapy, that includes intermittent hemodialysis. That actually includes peritoneal dialysis as well. Excuse me. Um, this, again, from the Cadigo guidelines, the details of this are unimportant. This is more so you have it when you guys get these slides. Obviously, what are our indications or application, potential applications of renal replacement therapy? Nothing on this list is going to be any big surprise to anyone. All right, so we have Uncle Sal, right, living out in the community with his chronic renal failure and stage renal disease. What does Uncle Sal do? Uncle Sal goes to his dialysis center three times a week, right? He gets his nice dialysis sessions, and he goes back to playing golf um, on the in-between days, right? Perfect intermittent hemodialysis, works great. Maybe he gets a transplant, maybe he doesn't. Intermittent hemodialysis, fantastic for your patient who's sitting at home, otherwise healthy. What about this guy? Um, and yes, this is an actual patient. 
IHD for this guy? Maybe not, but maybe. And that's what I kind of want to walk through a little bit. <clears throat> so what are the different modalities that we can apply to patients who have acute kidney injury or acute renal failure in the hospital setting with acute kidney injury as opposed to chronic renal disease? So IHD, CRT, SLED, and peritoneal dialysis are kind of our four main options. And again, there are people in this room who are much more familiar with IHD, peritoneal dialysis, and probably CRT than I am. Um, but intermittent hemodialysis, right, you need a patient who's hemodynamically stable, typically. It's very rapid removal of toxins and low molecular weight substances. It allows for downtime for procedures, so your patient can go off to the operating room. Uh, reduced exposure to anticoagulation, that's good. And lower cost. The disadvantages, obviously, are hypotension with rapid fluid removal, dialysis disequilibrium syndromes with potential cerebral edema, and it is a technically more complex and demanding um, uh, uh, therapy to apply. CRT, obviously very good for patients who are hemodynamically unstable, patients who are at risk of increased intracranial pressure, a concept I'll come back to in a little bit, but it's expensive, and I'll show you that in a second. The machines are very, very user-friendly these days, right? The nurses, I mean, it's basically you plug them in and, the, and they let the machine run. Um, who remembers that back in the, in the brawn days where, Dr. Reynolds certainly remembers back in the brawn days where the nurses used to have to jerry-rig the pumps to get them to work. Now, with the Gambro pumps and the Baxter pumps are very similar, it's pretty easy to do at the bedside. SLED, I mentioned, again, I won't talk much about SLED. I don't know much about SLED. Slow, low-efficiency dialysis is basically typically, and correct me if I'm wrong, 12 hours a day, daily. So it's kind of an intermediary between intermittent hemodialysis and CRT. And then peritoneal dialysis, we should never forget about. It's not something that we commonly think about in the ICU for a variety of reasons, but it is good for patients who are hemodynamically unstable. If you can't get a catheter in them, it works really well to cl clear solute. Um, you also have to be careful, though, in our patients in the ICU, open abdomen, probably not the best patient for PD. Um, <laughs> it's just really messy. <laughs> um, and then patients, obviously, who have peritonitis of any sort, intra-abdominal infection, clearly not a candidate. But you should keep in the back of your mind, especially if you're going to go work in a resource-poor environment where we don't have CRT pumps everywhere, peritoneal dialysis is very, very effective. Not so much at volume removal, but at solute removal. I just mentioned this because CRT is absolutely unequivocally more expensive than IHD. So just keep that in the background as we talk about this era of cost containment. We all need to be, it's on every one of your evaluations. Did you pay attention to resource utilization, right? I never know what to put for that because I never do, right? I just spend as much money as I possibly can on any patient. So I always feel bad marking you guys down for putting somebody on CRT instead of IHD. But it is much more expensive, CRT. Okay. Oh, God, I apologize. It's projecting terribly. This is a Cochrane review looking at mortality as your endpoint, looking at CRT versus IHD, right? And what you can see here, hopefully, what you can see here, yep, what you can see here is at the very bottom of this, right, in this nice meta-analysis, no benefit of CRT over IHD in high-level studies. Um, when you look at them and compile them all together. All right, no mortality benefit of CRT over IHD. When you look at your, the outcome of recovery of renal function, you see maybe a possible non-statistically significant favoring of CRT, but no evidence-based statistically significant benefit of CRT over IHD with respect to renal recovery. This is another meta-analysis, actually very nicely done meta-analysis. Again, same thing. No benefit, this is a mortality outcome, no benefit of CRT over intermittent hemodialysis. But in this article, which I highly encourage, if I, I think I gave you guys this one, um, there were a couple of things in the discussion that I want to point out about these studies. Number one, these studies, um, the largest of these trials were really biased by exclusion of those patients with hemodynamic instability, who are obviously the patients that we primarily like to target with CRT as opposed to intermittent hemodialysis. Very high rates of crossover in these studies. There were unfortunately imbalances in patient characteristics, despite the fact that these were randomized trials. There were real disparities and limitations with respect to their comorbid uh, illnesses, severity of illness, and primary diagnosis, very, being very difficult to kind of conglomerate these studies and evaluate them in, in a in a meta-analysis. And then finally, none of these trials considered the subgroups of ICU patients that we would be most interested in applying CRT for, namely patients with brain injury, hepatic encephalopathy, or those patients who are hemodynamically unstable, and patients with sepsis. So it was kind of a conglomeration of acute kidney injury. 
What's the problem with IHD? I mentioned this a little bit, right? Number one, it may worsen acute ischemic injury to the kidney with hypotension. It causes an elevated intracranial pressure, a concept I'll come back to in a quick sec in a second. It's an intermittent therapy, so patients who are otherwise healthy can tolerate their, their intermittent hemodialysis um, with respect to venous capacitance. But patients who are critically ill, have leaky capillaries, may not tolerate that up and down of fluid shifts and that, that day and a half of getting no therapy with respect to uh, um, fluid removal. And then CRT, CC for CC, will remove more urea, creatinine, and fluid. Um, Additionally, and probably potentially most importantly, not maybe most importantly, but very importantly, is with respect to feeding and nutrient delivery. If you have a patient who's in your ICU who has acute kidney injury and you want to do intermittent hemodialysis, right, fully recognize no mortality benefit, no renal recovery benefit of CRT, how are you going to feed that patient? You do need to use a renal restrictive strategy to feed that patient. As opposed to CRT, you do not need to do any kind of um, a nutritional restriction with that patient. So potentially, particularly patients with large wounds, or um, we know that patients, you know, that ideal enteral therapy or ideal nutritional therapy is preferable. So CRT may allow you to do that. It may be another added benefit. So what do the CADIGO guidelines say about CRT over IHD? They do recommend CRT for patients who are hemodynamically unstable and for patients with acute brain injury. What's, um, this is just, again, uh, Cochrane, and these are the endpoints. Uh, this is uh, patients with hemodynamic instability, a systolic blood pressure endpoint. I can't see that far. Mean arterial pressure. That's because I need my progressives. Um, I have to get progressives. I'm very sad. Um, mean arterial pressure at the end of the study period and patients who require escalation of pressor therapy. And you can see for most of these, they do favor the use of CRT over IHD in these types of patient populations <coughs> when you use these proximate endpoints. What happens in the setting of cerebral edema? This is just two graphics that kind of show you what happens when you, get, when you dialyze a patient who has um, intracranial pressure monitor in. What is the issue? Why does this happen? Well, number one, there isn't a hemodynamic effect, right? As you put somebody in IHD, you start to take volume off, their blood pressure goes down, and we know that's bad for cerebral perfusion. But the way in which CRRT, uh, IHD, excuse me, is thought to worsen cerebral edema has to do with this degree of unphysiology. I didn't know that was a word, but apparently Dr. Ronco thinks it is, leading to increased water content in the brain after each session. It leads to this post-dialytic brain demonogenic state. Don't ever ask me to say that again. What happens? Well, during IHD, there's this rapid correction um, of plasma acidosis due to the use of bicarb. The bicarb is not diffusible. The CO2 is. So you get a cellular acidosis in the brain, which then leads to increased brain water. And that's thought to be the mechanism by which intermittent hemodialysis causes cerebral edema. So what are our indications for CRRT? This is Sam Galvano's review article. It's a re I gave this to you guys. It's a really nice review article. He did a fantastic job. I thank him for throwing my name on there. Um, I think I like corrected spelling on a word or something. But it's a really nice, very little to do with it. It's a really nice review of CRT applications, dosing, that type of thing. So I highly encourage you to refer to it. Again, nothing on here is going to be surprising to anybody. I will highlight those bottom two um, that you don't typically see on indications for renal replacement therapy lists, right? And that would be severe sepsis, which we'll come back to, and rhabdomyolysis in the absence of acute renal failure. All right. So what do we need to dialyze a patient? I'm going to go back to some of those basic principles again. What do you need? You need a patient. You need a filter. You need a pump. You need a nurse. You need a catheter. You need fluid, either a dialysate or a substitution fluid, and as I said, your machine. All right. So let's very quickly, because you guys all know this by now, right, let's walk through how we do this. Scuff, slow, continuous ultrafiltration. You have your patient. You have your filter. You have your bucket, your effluent. Blood comes out of the patient, goes across the filter, goes back to the patient, and fluid comes out of the filter by a change in hydrostatic forces across that filter. All you do with scuff is just volume removal. So what you do is you dial in a QB, how quickly you want the blood to be going through, and how much fluid you want to have come off, and the machine will automatically transregulate the pressure in the filter to take off that much fluid every hour. That's it, scuff, right? Just volume removal. CVVH, continuous veno-veno-hemofiltration, sometimes abbreviated to CVVHF. Patient, bucket, uh, sorry, filter, bucket, blood comes out of the patient, goes across the filter, goes back to the patient, fluid comes off into the bucket, and what you do is you take enough fluid off into the bucket to generate a convective force across that filter so that you start getting removal of solute 
and molecules across that filter. If you just did that with just the blood, without adding anything, your blood would turn to mud in your filter, right, as you took off two liters an hour of blood, of, of I'm sorry, of, of fluid from your blood. So you just add in an, inter, an intravenous fluid, your substitution or replacement fluid, either pre or post filter, a concept I'll come back to, and you get volume removal, convective clearance for molecules, dial in a QB, dial in a QUF or PFR, patient fluid removal, and your substitution flow, either pre or post. That's CVVH, right? CVVHD, continuous venohemodialysis, you get your patient, you got your filter, same filter, I just made it look different, just to confuse you, uh, same bucket, blood comes out of the patient, goes across the filter, blood goes back to the patient, fluid comes off. In addition, you run a dialysate countercurrent across the patient's blood, setting up an, a diffusive gradient of substances to allow for diffusion of solute from areas of high concentration to areas of low concentration. So to take a ridiculous example, a potassium of six, if what I do then is if my patient's potassium is six and I use a zero, pota zero potassium containing solution and run it countercurrent to the patient's blood, you see what happens and we continually get diffusion across that membrane of that potassium until it, reaches, until it reaches equilibrium or the blood passes back out of the filter. That's how dialysis works. That's how intermittent hemodialysis works as well. And you can see that now my fluid contains four milli, four milli equivalents of potassium and my patient contains two, right? Not exactly, but you get the idea, yes? Solute and volume removal, typically not middle and large size molecule removal for concept for reasons we'll come back to. I dial in my QB, I dial in my PFR, and I dial in my dialysate flow rate. CVVHDF, just put them all together. Oop. And all you basically do is you take your QB, your patient, your blood flow, your QUF or your PFR, your dialysate flow rate running countercurrent, your substitution flow, flow rate running into the patient's blood, and you get solute volume and uh, solute and volume removal and convective clearance of middle and potentially large size molecules. Make sense? Quick review, quick refresher. And you can't steal those slides because it took me a really long time to make those. Um, you have no idea. Um, so let's talk about, I'm like PowerPoint retarded, so it actually, I was so proud of myself. Um, so let's talk about some, con go back to some concepts now. So diffusion versus convection, I kind of mentioned this, right? Filtration, CVVH, works by filtration. It's a convective clearance mechanism. It occurs when water is driven by a hydrostatic or osmotic force pushed through a membrane. Solutes can then, that can pass through that membrane because of pore size are then swept along with that water that convective force you generate called solute drag. That's how you clear with hemofiltration. You need to have movement of water across that filter. Conve uh, diffusion, however, is a diffusive clearance. This is what happens in dialysis, where it occurs due to movement of solutes as a result of random molecular motion. If you get a, a, uh, a solute up with a, that can go through a pore of appropriate size, it will move from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. That's just diffusion. This is just another way of saying the same thing. This shows you that in dialysis, your dialysate is kind of around where your, where your blood is flowing through those filters, obviously going from areas of high concentration to low concentration as opposed to hemofiltration where your blood's going through those filters and it's basically the water's being pushed out and then solutes go with it by hydrostatic forces. All right? <clears throat> well, what about the interaction between the two? So we know that in both IHD and CRT, removal of solutes occurs by both diffusion and convection. In IHD, you use relatively high blood and dialysate flow rates, which result in very high small solute clearance. They are primarily diffusive. Now when you do IHD, though, you also generate some convective force by taking volume off the patient. So you do do both things in IHD as opposed to CVVHD where you are not typically, if you take off, if you set your PFR five liters, yes, you will generate convective force, but typically we don't do that. In IHD, diffusion and convection interact in a manner that the so total solute removal is actually less than what you would expect if you just add the two together. And the reason for that being, um, I apologize for sort of reading this, but I don't want to get myself confused. Um, diffusive solute removal results in a decrease in the solute concentration along the axial length of the filter of the hemodialyzer, right? So your concentration 
ultimately decreases along the length of the filter. We know that the convective clearance is directly related to the concentration as well. So you get, you get um, sequentially less effective convective clearance because of your dial because of your, because of your diffusive clearance. Additionally, you also have hemoconcentration, which results from that ultrafiltration of the plasma water, which causes an increase in your hematocrit and protein concentrations across the length of that filter, which increases viscosity and subsequently decreases efficiency of filtration. Does that make sense? Let's not forget about adsorption, very important. Adsorption, there are molecules that will adsorb to your filter. It can be actually a very key component in clearing substances. Um, some filters are more adsorptive than others, but it's not purely about the convection or the, or the diffusion. It also can be about adsorption. Different filters that we have available, polysilphone and the pan filters, polyacryl nitrile are the ones we use most commonly. They're also polyamide filters. The pan filters tend to be more adsorptive, just to keep that in the back of your mind. The polysilphone filters are very non-adsorptive. And then you have filters that are known as high flux or low flux. All that means is big pore size versus small pore size. Took me a while. I don't know, why can't you just say big pore size versus small pore size? Don't you have to say flux? It, makes, it confuses the non-nephrologist among us. But that's all that that means when you talk about a high flux filter, big pores. All right, let's talk about a little bit of clearance. What determines clearance? And again, I, there's a little bit of mishmash of concepts. But So your hemofiltration clearance is going to be determined by two things. Your ultrafiltration rate, the amount of flow going, going into the bucket across the filter, and what's known as your sieving coefficient, which I'll come back to. Hemodialysis is determined by your dialysate flow rate as well as what's known as dialysate saturation. And then the two will interact when you do hemodiafiltration, not in a purely additive fashion for the, re additive fashion for the reasons I just mentioned, but that's how you determine clearance. All right, let's talk a little bit briefly about dialysate, dialysate saturation because it is what helps to determine clearance by this formula here. You, can, uh, you will have decreased dialysate saturation with increasing molecular weight of a substance because that decreases the speed of your diffusion and by increasing your dialysate flow rate because you don't basically get the, the um, I, I think of it as almost like dwell time for a peritoneal dialysis, right? If you increase, if it's, the blood's going to, if your dialysate's going too quickly, right, it won't have time for those substances to then diffuse out into their area of low concentration. So those are the things that are going to determine clearance on hemodialysis. As I said, clearance by hemofiltration is determined by your ultrafiltrate rate as well as your sieving coefficient. Sieving coefficient is just the concentration of a substance in the ultrafiltrate versus the plasma. So how easily does it pass through? A sieving coefficient of one, it passes freely. A sieving coefficient of zero, it's unable to pass. And again, your clearance in hemofiltration is going to be determined by your ultrafiltrate rate and the sieving coefficient of a given substance. What determines your sieving coefficient? Well, the molecular weight of the substance, very important. Whether it is protein-bound or non-protein-bound, right? Typically, we only clear things that are, pro that are unbound, uh, which is not true for Mars, so I'll come back to that. The porosity of your filter, high flux versus low flux, and then the absorption of proteins and blood products onto the filter, which can gunk up your filter and decrease your efficiency as you go, as you go forward. This is just shows you the effect of high versus low flux membranes, big pores versus little pores, on clearance of a variety of substances, and then the subsequent effect on sieving coefficient. This is just some examples of sieving coefficient. You can see your sodium, your potassium, your chloride, very freely diffusible, I'm sorry, very, very freely filterable, whereas if you get to your albumin and your total proteins, basically unfiltered, should be unfiltered. These are some common drugs. I just throw this out here just so we get some idea. So vancomycin, for example, pretty easily filtered. Daptomycin, very poorly filtered. And there are charts you can actually now, actually the PDR finally added a, C, a CRT section for clearance. Uh, not the PDR, whatever the, um, the, P, the, whatever the pharmacists use, the pharmacopoeia thingy. Any pharmacists here? They can look it up. They can look it up for you. That's what I mean. Um, but it will tell you if something is clearable or not. Clearable or not. The one that's not on here, um, diflucan, fluconazole, basically has a sieving coefficient of almost zero. So not clearable. So renal adjustment appropriate. Um, again, uh, a couple of different drugs. You can see that are clearable and not clearable. And then you want to know how much of those are protein-bound versus non-protein-bound. Remember, protein-bound uh, drugs will not be cleared. So this is a little list about proic acid, for example, will not be cleared. Um, the NOACs, 
the novel oral anticoagulants. Um, the only one that is, that is largely unprotein bound is Pradaxa. The other two, Eliquis and Xarelto, are both protein bound, so are not going to be filterable. filterable. But fortunately, those two are at least reversible with PCC. Call for approval first. Um, this is. <laughs> because then the hematologists yell at me. Um, this is just another example of that of what diffusion does based on molecular weight versus convection. Again, diffusion is going to be your small solutes, your small molecules. It's purely going to be based on pore size and, and the different in concentration gradient. Convection, as you start generating those convective forces, you can start really clearing some middle-sized molecules, larger molecules, and then this is your kidney, which does a better job than anybody else, anything else could possibly do. I throw this up here again, some molecular weight so you know what you're clearing. <clears throat> um, again, as we get up towards albumin, it should not be cleared at all. The tiny little things, sodium, potassium, urea, all very easily clearable. This is what vancomycin molecular weight looks like, myoglobin, which is why you absolutely need to use hemofiltration to clear myoglobin. All right, another concept, filtration fraction. Filtration fraction is the fractional, fractional amount of ultrafiltrate which is produced in relation to the amount of plasma flowing on the hemofilter per unit of time. Optimal ranges, it's interesting, if you read different people, what do you guys use? 15 to 20 percent is what I was always taught, and then I was, when I, as I was preparing for this lecture, I was trying to find some more images, and I, I read less than 30. Less than 30. Yep. 15 to 20 percent, this is actually, these are actually slides I stole from either Ronco or Bellamo, I can't remember which. I get them confused. I know, one's Australian, one's Italian, but um, they say 15 to 20 percent in a lot of the stuff that they write. I've seen less than 30. The concept here is that if you have a higher filtration fraction, you run into issues with respect to filter clotting. If you have lower filtration fractions, you run into issues with respect to efficiency of filtration. So all you're doing is making your blood run faster without any real benefit of it. And then you get more potential um, trauma to cells, you get more hemolysis theoretically, and typically you're just, your blood pumps are just slipping at that point. They're just not functioning. You, you can dial in a speed, but you're not getting that speed. And again, this, this reference said filter, fil filtration fraction should not exceed 30%. Now the formula sorry, I, that I showed you, this actually is just a kind of a pure, remember this is plasma flow, not necessarily blood flow. And so there are adjustments to this that you can make for the patient's hematocrit, right? Because if their hematocrit is very high, that is going to give you relatively lower plasma flow and a relatively lower filtration fraction. Does that make sense? Um, and then this is something I did years ago now um, where I just did the math using QB, again, as a surrogate. You have to take, keep in the back of your mind what the patient's hematocrit is, translating the, the units um, in an Excel spreadsheet because I certainly wasn't going to do the math, and shows you approximate, um, when we set a given blood flow of 300, 300 we want a, QB, a QUF or Q substitution flow of about three liters. If you want to go higher, you need to match your blood flow to get, maintain an adequate filtration fraction. Make sense? And then this is just looking at the um, effect of filtration fraction, sieving coefficient, and molecular weight. All right, pre versus post dilution. People ask me about this all the time. This slide is a little bit complicated. <clears throat> and I'll see how I'm doing on time if I decide. Okay. So basically, when you talk about pre versus post um, filtration, uh, pre versus post dilution for, with respect to where you're going to put your substitution fluid, this is an example. The green line here is going to be post filter, right? So you have a concentration of a given substance in A, you have a given blood flow rate, you have a given ultrafiltration rate, you have a the concentration of a substance in uh, V and with a certain crit. Where, and then you can see, if you may do the math, you can see what happens to your clearance. If you do the same thing, because you are now filtering a solution, you're filtering the blood with added solution, you get less efficient uh, clearance, and you can see what happens if you do the math in this pure theoretical model of what happens to your clearance, it decreases. That being said, and again, this is a little bit of a, of a complicated expla explanation, we know that in post-dilution CVVH, small solute mass re removal per unit volume of ultrafiltrate is very high because your solute concentration is going to be very high in your blood that you're passing through. You're not adding your substitution fluid till post-filter. But don't ever forget, just because you tell the machine to do something doesn't actually mean that's what the filter's doing. And this, these concepts of uh, viscosity and shear really affect the efficiency of your filtration. As a general rule, the maximum achievable ultrafiltration rate in post-dilution systems is limited to about 25% of your plasma flow rate because of those properties of what happens in your filter. 
If you do pre-dilution CDVH, you get less solute removal, right, because you're diluting out the plasma. The reduction, the reduction in efficacy, sorry, is typically about 10 to 15 percent. However, you don't get the same constraints with respect to viscosity and shear. So CC for CC, pre-dilution fluid actually results in more efficiency because of the operational characteristics of your filter which is why we have chosen as our default to do 70% pre, 30% post. Does that make sense? So, so if you just do the math, post-dilution is better. If you actually think about what's actually happening in your machine, pre-dilution is better. Um, and I should just remind you that our pumps, the Gambro pumps, require some fluid post-filter. Post That's a function of one of the, um, of the deaeration chamber. It just requires a fluid if not, you would have a blood-air interface and you need a blood-fluid interface just for that, for that to function. So even if you want to put 1%, you've got to so, drip something in the post-filter chamber. All right, talk about dose of, of renal replacement therapy. KT per V is kind of how our nephrologists talk about it. It um, basically, K is the dialyzer clearance. Um, T is obviously time. KT, K, K times T over V, which is going to be the water in a patient's body. Here's an example for everybody. So if you have a dialyzer clearance of 30 milliliters per minute and you're, you're doing a session for 180 minutes or three hours, your KT will then obviously be 300 times 180 or 54. If you have a 70 kilogram person, the body's about 60% water, you have 42 liters of V, you just simply do the math, and KT per V, 1.3, which is about right for a generic given dialysis session. All right, that's what, about what we do to maintain people. Why do I even bring this up? Because <clears throat> when you talk about how do you then translate dose of dialysis for renal replacement back into CRT terms, there are some, you can, you can actually, um, you can use your KT per V to kind of calculate it backwards. Um, again, with you target about 1.2 to up to 1.4, and then also just as in the, uh, for the point of completeness, URR or the urea reduction ratio is just another way of KT per V. It's just a different way of measuring it. You guys typically use KT per V, though, right? So when we talk about recommending, and then Cadigo guidelines again, uh, the KT per V of about 3.9 per week when using either intermittent or extended renal replacement therapy in acute kidney injury. So. And then, what does that translate back into CRT terms? You can do the same type of math. It's recommending delivering, very important, an effluent volume of about 20 to 25 milliliters per kilogram per hour. Now, we write 25, 20 to 25 milliliters per kilogram per hour. What does the patient actually get? It's probably somewhere in most estimate about 30% less than that. And that's for a variety of reasons. Filter downtime, patient traveling to CAT scan, they just can't simply get the blood flow up as high as you want it, right? We've all, you, you, I don't know if you've ever actually looked. You say, okay, do this, and eight hours later, the patient's actually on that. So if you actually pay attention, so delivered dose should be about 20 to 25, which usually requires a higher prescription. The optimal dose is still controversial. There's been lots of discussions about this. Two large randomized trials have basically demonstrated no benefit of higher flow rates delivered dose um, than 20 to 25. Um, and this is just, again, Cadigo, a couple of just the, uh, the meta-analysis that basically demonstrated no benefit of higher flow versus lower flow with respect to, um, this is uh, renal recovery. However, your effluent volume also has been shown to significantly overestimate the delivered dose, and therefore what most people now recommend is really following the patient's electrolytes and what are your targets of therapy, what are your goals of therapy to really titrate your dose. So if you're not getting your desired clearance at 20 to 25, or if you prescribe 25 to 30, then increasing it is a very reasonable thing to do to target those endpoints that you want, which are typically your biochemical markers. These are some typical settings. Again, this is more for your reference of what people typically will start with. But again, remember what you prescribe is not necessarily what the patient receives. Um, just a brief slide on timing. People talk about early versus late. Unfortunately, uh, Dr. Reynolds, who is in the room, his uh, study that him and Dr. that uh, Lisa Gettings did here many years ago now, 93? Say it again. The, the, the study that you guys did looking at earlier initiation of CRT um, that actually demonstrated benefit. Um, the randomized control trials that have been done have not demonstrated benefit with respect to earlier administration of CRT. So yours was retrospective and observational. Um, these are, you know, again, these 
the snobs at Cadigo only use the randomized prospective trial, right? That's what they're supposed to do. So again, no, no, no evidence-based uh, no evidence benefit of earlier administration of CRT versus later. Anticoagulation, um, I will speak very briefly about the trisodium citrate since this came up for those of you who are on that email chain where I was screaming at Dan, please, please, please. Um, trisodium citrate is actually, by Cadigo, the preferred anticoagulant of choice for patients on CRT. Um, if you were going to use trisodium citrate, which this all came up for those of you who weren't on that whole email chain because um, we're having a problem with our catheters where you're out of the cars. They are on back order. They are not being made. I don't know what's going on in the newer catheters we're having some problems with, with filter clotting, filter life. So please, for patients that you would normally not necessarily consider anticoagulation for, please consider it because we've had, we're having patients with the filters going down every couple hours. If you are going to use anticoagulation, um, obviously that is up to you. CR, uh, uh, trisodium citrate is the anticoagulant of choice, however, is associated with hyperkalemia and a metabolic, al metabolic alkalosis. It is also associated with, because by the mechanism of action, profound hypocalcemia. So you do need to provide calcium as a replacement flu uh, calcium to the patient. The controversy Dr. Her and I were having, which he assumed was self-evident, which I will tell you is not, if you were going to use trisodium citrate, do not use a calcium-containing solution pre-filter. I cannot begin to tell you how often, I don't understand, I'm on 500 cc's now of trisodium citrate. Take the calcium out of your pre-filtered fluid because you just beat your head against the wall for the last six hours. So I will leave it at that. If there are contraindications, and particularly like the cardiac guys hate trisodium citrate, they hate the acidosis, I mean the alkalosis, they hate the, the hyper, hypernatremia, um, then heparin is the preferred agent. You can use bivalvirudin or argatroban um, as alternates. Vascular access, where should you put your catheter? Am I doing on time? Um, so when you, the Cadigo guidelines actually say, um, and these are not, this is not a graded recommendation, is actually right IJ is preferable. Um, now that is for a variety of reasons that largely have to do with um, that most of the data is basically in patients who, who are going to be on chronic or who are not acutely ill in an ICU. So the, re, the rationale behind why they made this recommendation is infection rate, right, thrombosis rate, because we know that a femoral DVT is a much bigger deal than an IJ DVT. Um, however, I will tell you, flow for flow, you will get much better flow off, of, off a right femoral vein catheter than you will off an internal jugular catheter. The problem with the internal jugular catheters, and I actually think I have this in the next slide, which is, is from Sam's art, Sam Galvano's article, is that if you have somebody on a lot of vent support, you will, you will get bad flow off of um, your, your IJ catheter. Subclavians tend to kink a lot, so femoral vein may be preferable in acutely ill patients, but the currently evidence-based recommendations are right IJ. Um, the other thing they talk about, obviously, we try to avoid subclavian lines in patients who are going to need chronic dialysis, right, because of the risk of central thrombosis and stenosis. That same thing actually holds true for femoral uh, catheters as well, if they're going to be a transplant candidate. Right? You want to avoid causing um, injury or thrombosis or long-term stenosis of the iliac vein. So how do we know when we're done? How do we know when to stop RT? Yeah, sorry, Mike. Oh, length of the catheter. Well, I did have a length of catheter slide, and then I took it out because we don't have the Maricars anymore. Um, and so I don't know what size catheters we have floating around these days. <laughs> we used to have a 16, a 19, and a 24. <clears throat> I honestly don't, anybody know what it, Paul, do you know? 20 and 24. So 24 is preferable in the femoral position. 20 is long for an IJ. And we don't have the You have to curl it around the patient's ear. Um, I highly recommend you invest in one of our, IV, in our EVD bands that we use for the IVC catheters. Um, yeah, so I actually don't even know what we have floating around these days. Um, obviously, uh, bigger um, is always better if you want to achieve high flow rates. Um, but obviously that's kind of patient specific. But the classic teaching that I always taught was, was 16, 19, 24. And then depending on the size of your patient and your indications, um, you would use a larger bore catheter. But I believe the arrows only come in one lumen size, right? Is that correct? Whereas the Maricars, we had 11, uh, we had 11 and a half and 13 French. They're 12 and 14? So they do. So they do have 14s. Um, sorry, so discontinuing uh, renal replacement therapy, again, Cadigo guidelines, discontinue it when it's no longer required. Yeah. Thanks. Super helpful. 
Um, obviously, that's true for any therapy that you apply, right? When the patient doesn't need it anymore, stop it. Um, but are there things we can, we can, are there criteria we can use that are a little bit better than that? Um, and then I just throw this in here because um, Cadigo very, very strongly does not recommend using diuretics to enhance kidney function recovery or reduce the duration or frequency of RRT as you're taking a, as, as hopefully they are developing renal recovery. Do not recommend use of diuretics. <clears throat> um, this is a Gibney's article. It's actually a nice article that talks about they, he has, you know, spontaneous urine output greater than 400, at least he tried to put some numbers around it. Um, correction of their metabolic derangements, no need for solute clearance, stabilization of fluid balance. You know what I do is I look at the ultrafiltrate bag. It sounds so stupid, but if the ultrafiltrate bag still looks like urine, then the machine's still doing a bunch of work. If the ultrafiltrate bag looks like water and the patient's Foley looks like urine, it sounds really dumb, and you have to be careful. They're very hypobilirubinemic. It doesn't work because it all looks like urine. Um, but it's just it's one of the kind of indirect things that I'll use. And obviously, they have to be clearing their solutes, and they have to be um, making urine, and um, or if you're transitioning them to a non-CRT modality. Um, I will say that the way we usually do it, and I think I've said, told this to you guys before, is we're kind of thinking about it, we're hemming and hawing, we're talking about it in rounds, we all say, okay, let's get another couple liters off today while, you know, just while, while we have it, we'll scuff them for a while, and then the nurse comes over to you and goes, yeah, the pump just went down, do you want me to restart it? And we're like, nah. So that's how we usually wind up seeing if somebody's okay off CRT. <clears throat> Very briefly, I want to talk about CRT and sepsis, right? We've all talked about this for a while. It's great for sepsis. Um, interestingly, uh, that despite a lack of evidence, um, we talk about a higher dose of CRT for patients who are septic for a variety of reasons. Number one, they have, they have a higher metabolic rate, so some of your clearance issues you just need to clear more stuff. Um, but also, we think that we're clearing cytokines. The Ivory trial, uh, the preliminary results, the 28-day um, mortality was lower in the preliminary results. But unfortunately, when they actually published their results, there was no difference in mortality. So really, we cannot, or they cannot, or we should not be recommending in an evidence-based way the use of CRT for sepsis. I will just point out a couple of kind of funky things you can do. This is approved in, the, um, in Europe. It is not approved in the United States. And it is a cytosorb, where it actually, it's a hemofilter, where you actually, it actually binds cytokines, good cytokines and bad cytokines. But we think that that may be beneficial. Um, and then there are other potential um, applications as well. This is the Euphrates trial, of which I know, I know uh, Dr. McCarthy is very involved in, where it's basically a polymyxin uh, um, in, uh, impregnated hemofilter. Is that a correct way of stating it? Um, that basically for patients who have gram-negative rod sepsis um, and have evidence of endotoxin. The cool thing about this study is they're actually measuring endotoxin, which is actually probably even more interesting than the hemoperfusion part of this. But um, this is we are in currently enrolling, correct? Currently enrolling, gram-negative rod sepsis. Call Paul. Um, did you? Ah. All right, just keep it in mind. Call Dr. McCarthy if you have a patient. All right, that's renal replacement therapy. Let me just let me go on and do Mars because Mars is pretty quick, um, and then we'll come back and I'll answer all, all of your questions, or I'll have my colleague, my nephrology colleagues, answer all of your questions. Let's talk a little bit about Mars. <clears throat> um, the liver, it's the largest internal organ in the body. Blood flow is about 1.5 liters per minute, which explains why our shoes all look like this after we have a bad liver injury. Principal functions, right? I mean, we think the kidney does a good job. The liver is like, you know, it does everything, right? It uptakes, metabolizes, excretes nutrients, endogenous waste and xenobiotics, synthesis and secretion of plasma proteins, your clotting factors. It does metabolic homeostasis and assistance, obviously, with digestion of fat. What happens when it stops working? I... Uh, I can say this in this room. Yeah, I hate liver failure. I, those patients scare the crap out of me. They are so frigging sick, right? I mean, who are the sickest patients in your ICU? The liver failure patients. You make you people can have them. I don't want them. And, and, there, and if there's anything worse than a patient with liver failure, it's a trauma patient with liver failure. So we know your liver is hugely important. Everything goes wrong. Nothing works well when the liver's not working. Survival rate of 27% in patients with hyperacute liver failure, 7% in acute liver failure. Among those who underwent a transplantation in this one series, the survival rate was, in fact, 71%. So we do actually have a cure for this disease, if you consider transplantation a cure. Um, however, what do you die from in the setting of liver failure if you don't get transplanted? Interestingly, you actually die for cerebral edema and sepsis. So, which is kind of an interesting brain-liver interaction, which I find fascinating. What do we do for patients currently? 
This is it. All 100% supportive, right? There is no liver-specific therapy anywhere on here. It's really interesting. And this is the, um, the uh, position paper from 2005, so it's a little bit older. There's probably a newer one. I should go, I should go and find it. But again, it's all 100% supportive. There is no specific liver intervention. Well, can we have a liver intervention? So this is this concept of liver dialysis. The principle is based on hemodialysis, right, which we know eliminates your small molecules, such as ammonia, uremic toxins, phenols, and mercaptines. <clears throat> you use a charcoal filter and an ion exchange, which then helps to basically uncouple the protein-bound substances in the blood and allow them to pass into a protein-containing solution, such as albumin. The albumin dialysis involves dialyzing the blood across an albumin-containing solution across a highly permeable, large pore membrane. And then those blood-bound toxins are cleared by diffusion and taken up by binding on the albumin dialysate. That's the concept of how it works. SPAD, single-pass albumin dialysis, which is actually really, really effective. Um, basically, you just take a CRT machine and you take a bunch of albumin and you run it in as your dialysate and you can just do SPED, single-pass albumin dialysis. What happens, though, when you do that is you take all that albumin and you run it in and it goes to the filter once and dumps in the bucket. So the first time I did SPAD, actually it wasn't the first time, the most recent time I did SPAD, I got called about two days later by the director of pharmacy and they told me I had used all the albumin in the state of Maryland and I couldn't do it anymore. It's just, you just burn through a ton of albumin, which brings us to the two uh, commercially available systems, Mars and Prometheus. I have no familiarity with the Prometheus system. Paul, did you ever use Prometheus at all in your previous life? Yeah, they, they function, it's basically like saying like back, it's, it, I thought it was, I'm not sure. They probably got bought by somebody. <laughs> um, it's basically like saying, do you use a Baxter pump or do you use a, a Gambro pump, right? It functionally does the same thing. Um, and there are commercially available systems that basically allow you, oops, that basically allow you to recycle that albumin through the charcoal filter so that you only are using a given volume of albumin rather than continuously passing 1,500 cc's of albumin through a filter every hour. Um, there are also, in the interest of kind of completeness, there are also some other devices. There's the hepatocyst device, neither of which are FDA approved for use in the United States. Hepatocyst, I know, is still undergoing clinical trial, and it is approved for compassionate use. And what it basically is, is your filter is chock full of liver cells, and it can be, um, some of them use human liver cells, the hepatocyst uses porcine liver cells, and basically, as you pass the blood through it, theoretically, those little chunks of liver then will do what the liver is supposed to do. Case report-wise, kind of impressive results, um, but again, not currently FDA-approved as far as I know last time I checked. But again, it can be used on a compassionate use basis. Basis very expensive, about $25,000 a day. <clears throat> so what does Mars actually remove? And again, I will use Mars Prometheus liver dialysis kind of interchangeably. Um, it removes bilirubin and bile acids, phenols and mercaptans, dioxin-like substances, tryptophan, ammonia, copper, iron. It has been demonstrated to improve cardiovascular function and portal pressure, so in those patients who have kind of acute on chronic liver disease, and, it, and most, probably most importantly and significantly, it improves hepatic encephalopathy. I will just run through this super quickly. A lot of you guys have seen this case. This was my index Mars case. A uh, 17-year-old kid, gunshot wound to the um, thoracoabdominal region, got, went to the OR, got packed, went to IR, got a right hepatic emboli artery embolized, got 200-plus units of blood. Um, this is his CT scan on post-up day four. You can see very significant necrosis of basically the entire right lobe of his liver. This is what his liver looked like externally. Um, we did a right hepatic lobectomy, um, and then you can see what happens is he starts necrosing the remnant portion of his liver pretty significantly, goes into profound fulminant hepatic failure. Um, this is when I started him on SPAD. This is the kid who got me in trouble. Um, so that's where the SPAD started. You can see what happens to his bilirubin and ammonia are kind of the two molecules, the two substances that will follow to see how effectively the MARS is working because they are not typically cleared with generic CRT. And you can see what happens when we started the SPAD. We then stopped the SPAD, and then I went and begged Dr. Scalia, and he bought me a MARS machine, and you can see what happened. Um, he actually was on Mars for eight days, which is much longer than, than is rec recommended, um, and he was weaned off pressors. He recovered native liver function and renal function. He was discharged to rehab um, a very long time after his mission, but um, ultimately did well. Um, this is a case, some of you guys were probably involved with this case. This is, I won't say the name, but this is the one that they 
Dr. Bartlett put on the cover of whatever newsletter we all get. 20-year-old uh, football player was at football practice. At the end of practice, he collapsed, was unresponsive. Subsequent history uh, demonstrated that he probably had taken more Adderall than was recommended. Um, he was also taking mu muscle milk and some five-hour energy drinks. He was taken to a local ED where he was found to have poor mental status and a temperature of 108. He was cooled and was transferred here, or was transferred, I'm sorry, to the CCRU. Um, en route, he did become hypotensive. Um, he was following commands when he first got here, but lethargic and agitated. You can see his initial labs there. Um, <clears throat> he goes to the MICU. He becomes increasingly hypotensive, high-dose epi, levo, vaso, bicarb drip. Uh, he started on CRT for anuria. You can see what's happening to his labs here, particularly with respect to his transaminases, his lactate, his renal function, and kind of your classic fulminant hepatic failure patient. Um, he, uh, his status of his liver failure worsens. He has increasing pressure requirement. He now has stage four hepatic encephalopathy. He is listed status one for a liver transplant. Um, somebody gives me a call. We wind up putting him on Mars. What? I gave you the call. You did, yes, thank you. I'm gonna put you in here. I'm gonna put a little picture of you, Dora. Um, and we put him on Mars. Uh, you can see the rates that we ran him at. These are pretty typical rates um, that you do for Mars. Um, and we gave him three eight-hour treatments. His pressure requirements did, in, did improve. His mental status did improve. This, you can see what happens to his transaminases. Um, bilirubin, which it, it doesn't look particularly impressive, but if you think of what the rate of rise would have been, right, in fulminant hepatic failure, we typically see bilirubins up in the 30s, 40s, and these guys, whoop, right, so it's much less of a rate of rise. And you can see what happens with his um, ammonia levels as well, and this is actually where he gets transplanted. Um, he has three offers for livers during this period of time, but they are of poor quality. He's a big kid. He was, what, 6'4", 280 or something, big kid. One was a very poor size match. One was from, like, an 85-year-old, and one was a DCD, and they really wanted to give this young kid a really nice liver. So what this did for us is it didn't do anything other than buy us time, um, and he did undergo a successful transplantation and subsequently has done very, very well. What does the data say about Mars? You can see here, this is just a little compilation of, from 2007. Again, these are all small studies. <clears throat> um, did we see improvements in biochemical markers, bilirubin, bile acids, creatinine, and ammonia? Yes, pretty much universally you did. Were there improvements in cardiovascular function with respect to um, pressure requirements? Pretty much in those studies that looked at it, yes, you did see improvements in cardiovascular function. And did you see improvements in, in uh, CNS function, meaning uh, degree of hepatic encephalopathy? And the, and the answer is, in many of these studies, yes. These are non-control studies, so the question is survival, yes, no, does it help? The relief trial, which was published a couple years ago, these were as a bridge to transplantation, demonstrated no survival benefit um, of the use of Mars, so a la CRT, no survival benefit, but anecdotally, et cetera. So I will terminate with that. I know, how'd I do? <sighs> Two minutes to spare. Um, 92 slides, by the way, just in case anyone was wondering. Um, and I only put together the last 10 of them while I was dilated after my eye appointment yesterday. Couldn't see anything. Um, so I'm happy to answer any questions. I thank you guys for your attention. And tell me what I, did, what I said wrong. <laughs>